You're listening to Mech's Design Talk, the podcast for emerging tech, user behavior, and designing better digital experiences. This is a special episode to celebrate our first anniversary, and that means new music, two familiar voices, and a familiar reminder that you can find our show notes with links to everything we discuss at mobileuserexperience.com. I'm Marek Pawłowski. And I'm Alex Guest. Alex, I owe you a bit of an apology. I managed to forget our birthday. Right. That is, in in some people's books, disgraceful. Well, I I do try with these things, but uh, there's been a lot going on, all sorts of busy things happening within the MEX community, as those are following us at mobileuserexperience.com probably know. Uh, And... I sort of let it slip that it is actually a year since we started this podcast. Which I find slightly hard to believe. Time has flown by. Um, We've had, well, this will be the 29th episode. That's about 30 plus hours of podcasting. Had 21 different guests on over the course of the year. I think technically it was a year just at the the end of January, beginning of February, I think was our, our first episode back in 2016. So I'm sorry I forgot our birthday. You know, number one is a pretty big one as well, the first birthday. So I feel a bit remiss about it. Um, but, you know, by way of making amends, I figured we could have this episode to maybe talk through a little bit about some of the most memorable moments that we've had over the course of that year, because we've got to meet a tremendous amount of interesting people uh, and have some great conversations between ourselves as well, all about emerging technologies and user behavior and designing digital experiences. Um, how's it been for, for you overall? Um, because, you know, this was a bit of an experiment when we started it, to be honest. It, it, it was an experiment. Um, I had no idea what I was letting myself in for. Uh, <laughs> But it, as it turns out, what I had let myself in for was um, some pretty broad-ranging conversations uh, with a pretty diverse set of people. And um, for me, it's been really enlightening. Um, as, uh, as many people uh, will know by now, I, I am not a, a UX practitioner by background, and, and I don't have uh, a design background specifically. Um, but very much recognize the importance of design within technology, uh, which is more my sort of background. And what is, this has allowed me to do is, is, is really to understand a lot more about what's going on across a variety of industries and, and how user-centered design thinking can bring a lot of value to a huge number of different businesses. Well, I've always been of the view, you know, right going back since you know, we, we started the MEX initiative, that you can't make change happen within digital experience design if you try and do it in a vacuum. And within that, I'd include the vacuum of just designers talking to designers. And I think that's one of the things that I've really enjoyed about our conversations and the way we've been able to uh, interview different guests together is that we're able to bring 
those slightly different perspectives. Uh, and in some ways, I think you know maybe not coming from that traditional design background is a bit of a virtue for you in that regard because you are able to bring that different perspective and particularly you know the the business background, the technology background to be able to understand a few of the challenges from the industry perspective that are being faced now by some of these people um, who have come from the experienced design background but are now going into all sorts of different industries that are undergoing th- these transformations. Yeah, and really, th- th- there isn't an industry that is isn't undergoing some sort of transformation. I mean, for, for a lot of them, it, it's it's just waking up, believe it or not, to, to, to the opportunities that digital, in inverted commas, has. And with that, beginning to understand that digital isn't just putting things online or in the cloud, um, it's, it's designing experiences. Um, and uh, we're starting to see that in pretty much every single industry uh, that you can think of. Yeah, it's very true. I and mean, if you just look at the the range of guests that have been on the podcast, I mean, obviously we've had plenty of people who uh, are involved directly in experience design work, either on the agency side or within in-house teams. But the range of industries, you know, we've had people from financial services, we've had people from uh, big technology companies, we've had people from healthcare, from automotive uh, yeah, a real range of different industries that are all now thinking about these issues and, and trying to understand those core techniques which allow you to really interpret emerging technologies in a way that is more user-centered so that you can then implement things which are going to create better customer experiences rather than just more technology for technology's sake. Yeah, and and I guess it's worth just, just stressing there that as part of that investigation uh, over, over the last 12 months you know we've, we've we've also talked about all sorts of different emerging technologies as well from from AI uh, through to you know robots and 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 all sorts of other things you know even wearables we've talked about yeah it, it's been pretty diverse um, which is is great yeah it's one of the reasons why it's always nice to get together for these chats every couple of weeks um, and you know I feel like it is actually um, resonating with people to a degree. Podcast stats are notoriously difficult to keep track of because of the way podcasts are distributed. Um, But we have been able to dig up a few figures on listenership. Uh, And on SoundCloud alone, uh, we have had 3,579 unique listeners just within the last 12 months to the podcast. Um, we're also on all sorts of other platforms as well, iTunes and Stitcher and TuneIn and you know, wherever else you find good podcasts. Um, but just on SoundCloud alone, it's nice to know that we have this listenership out there of people who are all um, getting involved in the community, perhaps in a slightly different way from how Mex has worked in the past with our journal and the conference. It's become uh, a bit of a new channel, a new place for the community to talk about some of these issues. And it's happening all over the place. I mean, the range of cities where we uh, are getting listeners is pretty broad. I just went down the top 20 and pulled out five of them. Obviously, London, England, um, we have plenty of of local contacts here, which is great to see. Uh, Mountain View, California is also on there, Melbourne in Australia, Malmo in Sweden, uh, Bangalore in India, all within the top 20 listening to Mech's Design Talk. And do you, do you think these represent, you know, the technology hubs of the future? Well, it's an interesting thought, actually. I mean, Mountain View 
you know, there are one or two relatively well-known companies that are based in Mountain View, California. So <laughs> hello to our listeners there. Um, Melbourne, not so sure about in Australia. Um, I'm sure there's a, an interesting uh, tech scene there, although it's not necessarily a sort of tech capital. Malmo is a really interesting one, though. Um, Malmo has this history of um, interaction design expertise, which actually came up in the previous episode of the podcast where I was talking with Roger Anderson Raymer from Top. Um, now, Top Design, uh, a user experience agency, are based in Malmo, but many of the people who were involved in founding Top and now work there came from a path of TAT, the Astonishing Tribe, which was a real pioneer of mobile experience platforms, uh, which was also acquired by BlackBerry. Then you've got the connection with Sony Ericsson in the local area. There's a very good university there for interaction design as well. Um, so there's uh, you know quite a, a hub of interest there around digital experience design. Uh, and Bangalore in India, again, another you know big um, tech and, and services center there. So it kind of makes sense that these would all be within the, the top 20 of our listenership. Yeah, absolutely. So perhaps we ought to get on with some of the memorable moments and you know in particular why they were memorable at the time but also maybe a few thoughts about where they've developed since because you know with some of these they will date back now nearly a year or so to the the beginning of the podcast was there a particular uh, one which is foremost in mind for you or am i putting you on the spot too much would you like me to go first well, you know, you have a habit of putting me on the spot, Marek, and why, why change that habit now? <laughs> I, I think that um, there, were, there were quite a few people who spoke uh, throughout the year about the importance of uh, strategic design, uh, which I sort of alluded to a moment ago. And I, I think it's just, just worth touching on that a little bit because, um, I mean, obviously that's really what we're all about. But it's not just about hiring people in-house. And I think that was, this is one of the things that, in fact, in one of the, the conversations that uh, I wasn't unfortunately privy to, but um, the conversation that you, you had with Timo Ahapelto back in, I think it was episode seven. Uh, Timo Ahapelto is the founding partner of Lifeline Ventures, um, who said design must come from the startup's core team. Yeah, this was interesting. I mean, for those who don't know Lifeline, um, they're a, a VC based in Scandinavia that has had a number of successful investments in different startups who have all prioritized experience design. And I guess he was coming particularly from the perspective of an investor when they're doing due diligence, now looking for those particular qualities within the startup's team. Yeah, and, and I mean, what was what was interesting about that, listening to, to him speaking, he wasn't just saying hire a bunch of UX people. And, and I don't think he was necessarily saying that the founders have to be design experts either, but rather that there's an appreciation for design right at the core and that design is dealt with genuinely strategically. I mean, a lot of, you know, my, my, my experience in, in business over the last 20 years with all sorts of different services, all sorts of different consultants refer to themselves as strategic. And uh, very often they're not strategic, but, you know, they, they, it, it's sort of thought of in that way. Um, but but, what, he, but he, what he's really getting at is that the 
business itself is is driven by an understanding, an appreciation um, of what can be done when the offering, the product, the service, the system, whatever it happens to be, integrally brings in design, brings in the user and the user's way of being and behaving into that product service offering. Um, and, and that was something that, um, that really caused me to think uh, almost a year ago quite, quite strongly about how uh, I should uh, work actually within my own organization now uh, and, and, and some of the things that I'm trying to do at the moment. So uh, for me, that was really a very um, pertinent and, and prescient um, uh, quote that, that, that jumped out of me. Yeah, and I think it's something which is resonating at, at all levels of companies that are working uh, in some way with, with technology. Yeah, we've heard this as well from other people we've had on the podcast who are working with large in-house teams at larger companies, not just startups, and some of the efforts that they're making to try and place that real strategic imperative around the design work that they're doing. It's not always an easy thing to do. Uh, in fact, just um, this week, we've published a new piece on mobileuserexperience.com, which looks at how the actual process and structure of the way user experience projects are commissioned can influence whether or not they manage to achieve that sort of strategic impact. And I mean, go and have a, a read of, of the article. I'd urge the listeners to, to go and um, check it out because there's some tips in there for kind of key issues to address about how you can ensure that um, the fate of the project is not undermined in the way it's, it's commissioned. But one of the most important is ensuring that even if the founding team or the executive management that are commissioning it um, are not themselves from a design background, as you yourself have found in your startup, there is at least uh, an understanding and a mandate there to allow the findings that come in from user experience work to have the kind of influence that allows them to make real change to the, the overall experience of the customers. And unless that mandate um, is in place, then you can do the best quality of user research, you can do the best quality of visual design, uh, the best quality of interaction design, and its effectiveness will be hampered all the way along because there's not that kind of overarching mandate within the company to ensure that those things have the biggest impact for the customers. Absolutely. And do you, do you think it's worth just mentioning now some of the work that Innovate UK is doing uh, with regards to um, design and, and um, bringing strategic design capabilities uh, into uh, small, medium, large businesses? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's something which we've mentioned on the podcast in previous episodes, in particular when Innovate UK launched its Design Foundations competition. Um, I mean, perhaps you could give people just a, an outline of what Design Foundations is, because although the deadline has passed now for the first round of Design Foundations, I believe there are going to be additional rounds coming up in, in the future. My understanding is that there will be at least two more rounds of Design Foundations. Um, design Foundations fundamentally, as, as I mentioned, is, is aimed at businesses of all sizes, um, although it would probably 
be of most benefit to to micro and small enterprises, or, or you know what generally we tend to refer to as startups, um, and and it's and it's to get those businesses to work with external partners who can bring user-centered design expertise to the business, um, and it really it's not just about looking at uh, a product that you might have built, whether it's uh, a digital product or or, or or some other product or some other service that needn't be digital at all. And, and, it, and it's not about applying design to that product or service to, to improve it, but rather to think about how you can use design at the earliest stages of new product development. So uh, that can be uh, looking at new uh, business models um, and looking at business model design, but it can also be real tra- transformation. So taking a product and, and transforming it or, or taking a challenge and transforming it through the use of design and finding some way of answering um, that particular challenge that the business has and that users also have. And by way of, of uh, exploring what users do, the way they behave, the way they interact with different products, uh, really to explore that in a lot of depth, to come up with a range of, uh, of possibilities, uh, and then just to filter down to some options uh, for further investigation beyond the scope of, of, the, uh, of the project itself. So it's really looking at um, from, from the earliest stages through to, to coming up with uh, maybe one, two or three possibilities for further exploration. Well, I think it's particularly interesting that Innovate UK, which is the, uh, I guess, the the government's um, efforts to, to try and improve the UK's overall competitiveness through um, innovation of various different kinds. I think it, it's fascinating that Innovate UK has now begun to recognise that overall power of that experience-led design approach to be transformational for companies. And in particular with design foundations, making available these different uh, grants and funding um, to allow companies that wouldn't otherwise be able to do that at that earlier stage in their lifetime. They might not have the funds to do it. They might not have the expertise to do it, to allow them to get into that early on. And when we went along to the launch event for the Innovate UK competition, um, they were able to you know, talk about some of the experiences that they'd seen funding businesses at various different stages and see how those that had, had access to that design expertise at an earlier stage uh, ended up being that much more successful for the long term. So having seen those kind of success stories, they now uh, are able to justify putting on competitions like this and making available the funding um, and doing it very much, I think, with the hope that it will embed that kind of strategic design capability that you've been discovering the importance of um, within a wide range of startups and create that solid foundation for for the future of of innovation within the UK, which I think is a a really positive thing and, and, and wonderful to see. Well, there, there appears to be, and, and um, I, I may uh, not remember this correctly off the top of my head, but my, my recollection was that for every pound that is spent on strategic design, um, something like seven pounds is returned. Now, I don't know, I can't remember exactly whether it was returned to the company or whether it was re- returned um, 
to 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 the investor. So effectively, if if the government invests a pound, they will get seven pounds back. So I, I don't I can't remember exactly what the details were, but there is a, a very significant return there, um, whichever way you look at it. Uh, and and I guess the 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 government has said, you know, we 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 really should be doing this because it's going to uh, help Britain become more competitive. Yeah, absolutely. Well, what I'd recommend for, for listeners, if they're interested in finding out more about it, um, there we did put a report up about the launch of the original Design Foundations event in January on mobileuserexperience.com or have a look at the Innovate UK site where it's got all of those details and the, the specific metrics and the, the details of the, the funding there. Um, and, uh, you know, I'd urge listeners to, to go and take a look and, and get involved because it's something which um, clearly has some pretty strong potential for the future. It, it also gets me thinking a little bit about yeah, one of the, the memorable conversations for me from um, the, the last year, Alex, where uh, I went down to visit with Matt Hunter at the Central Research Laboratory. Uh, and Matt actually was the opening speaker at that Design Foundation's launch event that we attended and the overall uh, theme of our conversation when we talked for the the mex podcast was around the the power of um putting in place the right sort of culture uh to allow a a user-centered approach to design to thrive within companies particularly within technology and engineering companies and i think it's something let let me interrupt you there a second because culture is one of those words that for some people you know it conjures up the the worst source of posters with motivational quotes so i mean what, what, what are we really talking about here when we're talking about culture well i think some of it goes back to that question of mandate that we touched on earlier uh, and i mean the the, the quote from Matt in particular, which really resonated with me, he said, innovation is as much about bringing together the right cultures as it is the right talents and processes. And I think what he was getting at with that is that you know, no matter how uh, good and experienced the design team is that you bring in, no matter how great the particular best practice methods they're, they're using, if you don't have an overall appreciation um, and a willingness to let the power of that work flow through the overall work and efforts of that particular organization, then its effectiveness is always going to be limited. So I think in this context, when he's talking about culture, he's talking about the overall outlook of an organization. So the way different teams within that organization work together, the attitude of the management, whether or not, for instance, the investors behind the organization are on board with that kind of approach. I think all of those things knit together into that overall fabric, which, as you say, can be a bit of a woolly term um, when it's referred to as culture. But I think in the context of that conversation, uh, yeah, he was talking about um, yeah, all of those things which hold together a company as it goes in a particular direction. And if those aren't appreciative of the power of uh, experience-led design, then you're always going to struggle to see effective results from it. Yeah, and that that sort of also reminds me of, of some of what uh, Rob Graham was saying in his talk, um, actually at, at the MEX conference um, last year and and some of the challenges that pharmaceutical companies have 
because there on top of, of everything else, you, you also have that added dimension of, of pretty strict regulation. Um, and, and that regulation can get in the way of doing proper user research. Yeah, very much so. Uh, I mean, Rob Gray is the, the global head of user experience at AstraZeneca. And it was actually one of the, the more interesting sort of experiments of episode format we did as well, because we recorded it live as a, um, a conversation between myself and, and Rob at the, the annual MEX conference in London. And what he said is that pharma is a really challenging area for UX. In some markets, regulation prevents you from conducting user research directly with patients. Now, there are these different uh, regulatory regimes in place around the world. And for big global companies like that, obviously, they have to um, adhere to the regulations in the local markets. But when it comes to being able to understand the lives of users, how they relate to particular uh, products, he was coming across these challenges which he had not really experienced before, having come through a background of working within, for instance, um, the mobile uh, technology arena prior to joining AstraZeneca. And I think yeah, he in some ways was was quite surprised that these challenges existed out there. And it goes to show, I suppose, that the benefit of um, getting those wider experiences in different industries, because you can go through uh, your entire career with all sorts of assumptions which come from the specific area that you work in. And then suddenly you get landed in a market where, you know what, one of the most fundamental things to doing good experience-led design work, the ability to do user research, is taken away from you and you have to start thinking about more creative methods to, to, to be able to um, to get that insight yeah now I think I wonder whether it's worth just sort of drawing on on some of the differences between some of these different industries that, that you know we're, we're touching on here because obviously pharmaceutical is sort of somewhat uh, tangible but also not really because you know it's 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 often something that is ingested in some sort of way uh, yeah, and, and and you know, so th- so there's a difference between between that sort of thing and and you know, as you're saying, uh, other sorts of of markets, industries like I don't know, say physical products, and we, and we spent a little bit of time talking about physical products, you know, big things like uh, automotive, um, and and probably the smallest things, you know, cer- certain wearables. I guess the challenges that that we noticed are fundamentally different, actually, aren't they? Uh, from you know, for each of those, um, and um, you know, one of the things that that you know we saw with on, on the autom- automotive side uh, was the, the the length of time, the 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 the, the life cycle of each product is, is such that something that you might be thinking about today might be completely obsolete by the time the vehicle actually comes and hits the market. Yeah, that um, conversation we had with Parish Hanna who uh, leads uh, interaction design at, uh, and ergonomics at Ford, uh, was a fascinating one. Um, now, Parrish had spoken at one of our MEX conferences several years ago when he was in a similar role for Motorola. And he himself had been, I think, astounded by the difference in some of these uh, timescales and, and product planning. And he said, yeah, in mobile, I could go from concept to the store shelves in nine months. In automotive, we're still in three to five year product plans. And actually, once we got into the detail of the conversation, you start to realize that three to five years is 
probably you know a fairly short life cycle in the automotive world specific to some of the the digital elements within the vehicle actually for vehicles overall you're talking usually more like a 10 to 20 year sort of a life cycle by the time you factor in how long it'll be sold new on the market, then how long it'll be supported as a second-hand vehicle, which for people involved in uh, the space like wearables or smartphones is a whole different ballgame and really changes the way you think about um, the overall experience design process. Uh, In particular, as you say, about that business of integration with other products. And and this is something that we're seeing much more of within digital experiences as a whole is the idea that uh, there's a a need for digital experiences to be natively neighborly in the way they're designed so they can integrate seamlessly with your home entertainment or with your smartwatch or with your car or whatever other kind of digital touch points uh, are out there. And that's something which um, I think when you're working in those sort of five through to potentially 15, 20 year product life cycles becomes a really important practical issue. I mean, if you boil it down to a really um, prosaic level, what's going to happen if you go out and you build a vehicle which fully supports the latest, greatest smartphone that is at top of the market in 2017, when in five years time, an entirely new platform and system has emerged and you've got all of these vehicles out there that were built specifically to support that particular device. You know, that's the the challenge at a, a really basic level that a lot of these automotive manufacturers are facing, quite apart from some of the more existential questions about the role of the vehicle overall and the role of digital within the vehicle. Just at a really practical level, the mismatch between the pace of those different industries is causing some real headaches. Yeah, and, and of course, it's not just the, the devices, but it's the underlying technologies, the platforms, the the standards, you know, the, the APIs even, you know, that exist. And, and all, all of these things are, I mean, if, if we go five years back, you know, the, the, the opportunities that existed in digital are completely different to what we have now. And, and yet, you know, there are vehicles that are now coming onto the market that have been designed with, with that thinking in place. So um, I, I imagine a, a massive headache uh, and a hell of a challenge for, for the automotive industry. And, and it was fascinating to, to, to talk with Parrish about that. I'm also you know, finding it very interesting the degree to which those who began their careers in the area of mobile devices, broadly speaking, are now going on to influence so many other industries. I mean, we had Parish Hanna, uh, who's now with Ford, and when we first met him was with Motorola. There was Rob Graham, uh, that we've spoken about, who's now with AstraZeneca, but again, began within the, the mobile industry. And there are several others who have been involved with the podcast or the conference have all you know, gone down that, that path and are now finding that those skills which were developed creating things like smartphone experiences are now being looked at as having the potential to disrupt these other industries. Uh, And you can understand why so many industries 
are looking to the disruption that's come through smartphones because it's moved fast, because it has uh, become this ubiquitous thing that's that's very important in a lot of users' lives. Uh, but I wonder if there's also a bit of a danger in that as well, because if you think about the virtues of some of the design work that is already being done within, for instance, automotive, yeah, there are some really wonderful design touches that happen within the cabins of luxury cars or around the way particular interfaces are standardized um, within the, the vehicle displays and you know the sort of safety considerations for people who've got distracted attention while they're um, while they're driving and I think some of the early implementations that we've seen in automotive where people have essentially just transplanted the interface of a tablet or a smartphone, into the the vehicle have really not worked uh, in that context as well as they could. So, you know, I would hope that there could be an ongoing and improved dialogue between people who have maybe got those um, more traditional skills within some of those industries like automotive, like healthcare, like financial services, and some of the new ideas coming in from from digital and from the world of mobile devices to ensure that a happy medium is found between them. Yeah, but that that specific example you give of of you know the the car interface being poorly designed because it is effectively you know a mobile device that's been uh, stuck into the design that that's that's I suppose a, a perfect example of the opposite of what I what I was m- meaning earlier on when you're talking about having a strategic design capability within within the company or within the organization. Because at that point, rather than you know taking things strategically and from first principles and saying, you know, what is it that the you know what is the user's behaviour? How do they interact with this device that happens to be a car? Um, you know, what, what how should we improve that interface in such a way that you know the user is 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 delighted, yes, but also safer and 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 all those other critical components of um, vehicle design um, and and so if all we're doing is taking our end results from our previous experience and implanting them into these new industries I, I would say that we're failing to do what we should be doing rather than taking the principles of design and embedding them into the organizations well that, that that's interesting because I think that's something which uh, is true at, at any scale as well. And I, I know you've had some personal experience of this with your startup, uh, Zingy. Um, and I think it's probably the, the same challenge, albeit at a smaller scale, which is being faced by these automotive manufacturers, where there must be a temptation for you as the founder of a startup, for instance, to yeah, spend a bit of money on getting um, yeah, a sexy bit of visual design done for the interface of your product and hoping that it resonates with users because it looks fancy uh, and it's something which corresponds to the latest visual design trends, for instance, in the same way that there must be an awful lot of pressure on people working within these roles in automotive when you have perhaps an executive management team which uh, is 
agitating to respond to particular trends within digital and be seen to have you know the latest bits of digital kit embedded within their cars as soon as possible to meet quarterly objectives you know that that those two pressures whether it's happening within a startup or whether it's happening with a huge global company i think those pressures come from the same place but you know for, for you as the founder of a, a startup where you're going through this um, experience design process yourself firsthand how do you you know keep a, a clear head and keep focused on the long-term objective with it um if you you take that view that actually what you need to invest in is the the, the principles and the the long-standing uh, approach to design well while we don't have the the deep pockets of you know say ford or general motors um we do have another advantage which is that we can very quickly evolve our product and and we know what we're trying to do, um, and effectively, that is to assist in uh, nutritional behavior change. That is ultimately the, the goal. But what uh, we're able to do in the meantime is, is to continually evolve the product to, to, to improve it in all sorts of ways. And, and, and literally, I mean, the, that's, you know, the, the, the beauty of agile software development is that you can make improvements on the fly the whole time. With a, a car, as we were just saying, the, it's it's not so easy, uh, but it might be that um, changing the manufacturing process in some way might allow a more agile, even lean process to come come into play, where there are changes to the product that rolls off the uh, of the production line. Um, so that you know the car that came off the production line today is a tiny bit better than the one that came off last week. Um, that could be, you know, perhaps shifting the cup holder a little bit, or you know, changing uh, the angle of 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 a, of a dial or, or something of that kind. Just any, any small little change that that can potentially improve the user experience potentially minutely, but each of those minute improvements will add up to something. Um, but that's the sort of challenge that, um, you know, I don't know whether automotive manufacturers are, are in a position to, to, to do, whether they're already doing it uh, or, or whether that's even something they're considering. Well, I think there is a lot going on within the way hardware manufacturing is done. And this makes me think back to that conversation with Matt Hunter and the visit to the Central Research Laboratory. And one of the other things which Matt said in the course of that conversation, which is in episode 24 of the podcast, is let's not forget that true innovation needs to be about blending the physical and the digital. And that's very much part of the remit for the Central Research Laboratory is to get companies implementing these kind of user-centered rapid iteration processes um, across both the way that the software and the hardware components are woven together into an overall product experience. And within the Central Research Laboratory at the moment, most of those startups are doing it at relatively small scale, but the processes that they're using are all things which I think will go on to influence the way much larger manufacturers, like in automotive, for instance, uh, perhaps in other areas like architecture and, and house building and so on. I think there's a, a lot that could be learnt between um, those different uh, virtual and, and physical 
technical approaches uh, and being able to, to bridge between those different areas and share those techniques. So I, I think it's, you know, it's an exciting and evolving time um, to see all of the influence that those kind of methods are able to have. I mean, at the the other end of the scale, if you like, in terms of um, timescales and ability to iterate rapidly, uh, we also spoke with Sabrina Majid of, of BuzzFeed. I don't know if you recall that conversation from one of the very early episodes. I want to say perhaps it was episode, I think episode four, episode three or four, perhaps. Yeah, four it was, yeah. Um, and speaking with, with Sabrina was fascinating. She's come from a, a background of working with various different, very fast moving startups in Silicon Valley and uh, in, in New York. And she'd spoken at the, the MEX conference uh, a few years back, but now has ended up in this role um, as an experienced design lead at, at, at BuzzFeed. And yeah, BuzzFeed in many ways has become a, a bit of a byword for uh, that real um co-creation relationship with its its users in the way they co-create content with users in the way uh, as sabrina explains to us they also iterate the design uh, very rapidly in response to what they're seeing from from users and she was talking about you know the virtue uh, within seeing things fail and just being able to respond and being ready to respond when you see those kind of signals. And she said, you know what, when users break things or create workarounds, it gives designers a clear signal. So they'd structured their teams in such a way that they were able to look for and then quickly respond to what they were seeing in the live version of their products and roll that into the, the overall development process. Um, across you know quite a, a substantial user base i mean buzzfeed is is hundreds of millions of, of readers uh, so they're able to do this very rapidly but at large scale within the virtual environment yeah and i guess that's really one of the one of the the, the beauties of having that scale within a a digital uh, a purely digital business a digital content business is is that you really are able to do all the data analysis um, and and really quickly iterate. Um, I mean, that's that's just. Uh, I mean, Buzzfeed is is pretty special in that regard. I mean, there are lots of lots of other businesses spend a lot of time analysing what their users are doing. But fundamentally, the more you can understand about what your users are doing and and adapt, that that's that's really fundamentally user experience on the fly, isn't it? Yeah, very much so. And I think the proof is in the pudding with something like BuzzFeed. I mean, if you think back even a couple of years ago, it was it was a bit of a laughing stock. You know, it was those Absolutely. random bits of content which people sort of guiltily shared on social networks knowing that it was pretty, you know, poor quality stuff. Pure clickbait. And yet now uh, they've managed to iterate rapidly enough that actually, you know, BuzzFeed um, is being looked to for some quite pioneering pieces of journalism now. Don't get me wrong, there's still a ton of clickbait on there as well, but um, the, the the way in which they've been able to evolve what they stand for through that user-centered process has been fascinating to watch. Um, and I'll freely admit, I was very much a, a BuzzFeed snob initially, but talking to Sabrina about what they're doing opened my eyes to, to some of the progress that they've been able to make. Yeah, and I, I, I was 
also very much a BuzzFeed snob and, and um, five ways to scratch your back uh, is not the sort of article that I tend to spend very much time reading. Um, but- no, I, I want something a lot punchier than that. I'm looking for three ways to scratch your back. I mean, attention spans are small these days, Alex. Five, five is far too much. Three ways to scratch your back with your cat um, <laughs> while doing yoga. Um, and the um, but 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 now, I mean, it is it's there, there really is proper journalism, and and for me, and perhaps for a lot of other people, the the initial brand. Uh, promise and experience, which was that sort of um, clickbait, which, you know, it fills time. Um, it, it really isn't about that anymore. And when I when I come across stories from BuzzFeed now, that the name BuzzFeed doesn't really stick anymore. It's not really the right name anymore. It's not it's not this quick content. It's it's a lot of it is proper investigative journalism, as you say. Um, I think the contributions that are being made to political journalism by BuzzFeed are as good as many other outlets, uh, and certainly more sophisticated than than some of our, uh, shall we say, more traditional entrenched press. Um, you know, without wanting to refer to any particular daily newspapers. Well, that's um, you know an interesting thought in itself. The degree to which, if a company goes down that uh, route of really embracing a user-centered approach to their overall development, then yeah, is the ultimate result of that when the company actually ends up changing its overall identity, uh, yeah, its name, its brand, on the basis of how it's evolved in line with the behavior of its its users. You know, maybe that's the ultimate test if you're able to go from you know, BuzzFeed to whatever else they might call themselves in the future because that's the way that the user behavior has has indicated you should go. Yeah, maybe that's the the ultimate litmus test of just how user centered you're prepared to be as a company. Yeah, and and perhaps maybe the name BuzzFeed just is you know ends up not having any particular significance, and then they stick with it, um, and and allow the brand to evolve uh, regardless of the name. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, to shift to an entirely different area, um, do you remember uh, Neil Milliken? who's the head of accessibility and inclusion at Atos, that this was someone that was introduced to us by Patricia, our, our collaborator on MEX, and who's been on several of the, the podcasts herself, uh, and it's, our conversation about um, accessibility and an inclusive design. It, it, it's funny you should mention Neil Milliken, because um, I am right now looking at a, a, a quote from uh, episode 20, uh, when Neil Milliken, head of accessibility and digital inclusion at ATOS, was uh, was a guest. Ah, okay. And what did Neil have to say? Remind us. Um, well, he he strongly urged use um, listeners to engage with the accessibility community to advance your technology, uh, because you'll get deep insights from motivated users. And in particular, what he was saying was people with disabilities are some of the best life hackers. Um, and so you're forced to innovate to over- overcome accessibility issues. It was a memorable conversation for me. Um, I mean, with, with the MEX initiative, going right back to the early days of the first conferences that we did back in 2005, I was always keen to make sure that we covered this 
topic of, of accessibility and additional inclusion in various different ways. But that chat that we had with Neil Millican on the podcast um, was you know, really quite um, quite a revelation. And he was talking about how if you embrace that approach of co-creating better experiences with your user base, particularly those who have certain um, disabilities, that the strength of the motivation that they have for using particular products because of the benefits that it brings to their life means that he's found and he himself um, you know, has come from a, a background of you know, having certain difficulties with technology. Um, the, the incentive is so strong that they're able to provide you know, a whole nother level of feedback uh, and input and enthusiasm for being involved in that co-creation process, which can allow uh, companies to evolve the overall experience of the product for all of their users, not just those with specific disabilities, um, by virtue of, of the kind of uh, you know enthusiasm and insight um, these these particular users are able to provide, and you know that I think is a, a really powerful message about the value of uh, alternative sources of insight, if you like, um, and how they can have that that overall effect on uh, a company's experience design. Okay, and and so what is the best way of engaging with uh, the accessibility community um, in order to develop your technology, in order to develop your product? You know, how how, how should one go about this? Well, they were doing it in various different ways at Atos. Now, Atos is a, a huge IT services company, uh, and they have various different approaches. But one which you know, I remember particularly strongly was um, the academy that they've actually created within the company um, to help to involve people who have um, certain accessibility issues within particular projects to train them with certain skills, to bring them in to um, you know, different uh, project work that, that Atos is doing um, and to, to make them fully part of, of the team. Uh, and I think, yeah, that's really the, um, the the ultimate benchmark for this is to you know find ways to get people who have particular um, abilities but also sometimes particular disabilities um, to really be fully involved in that experience design process. And yeah, something like the academy approach, I think, makes a, a lot of sense. Um, but yeah, just being open to embracing those alternative sources of insight and seeing the value that they can bring to the overall experience design process feels like a good starting point. Yeah, absolutely. Now, I think we're probably coming towards the top end of the hour. And I wonder whether there was, you know, maybe one quote that still, you know, we haven't really referred to that really jumped out, that was something that, uh, that you felt was fundamental to, to the user experience process um, over the last 12 months. I think a theme which has really stuck with me and that there's no one particular quote um, which sums this up succinctly but it's come from I would say a quarter or so of, of, of the episodes have all touched on it in some way shape or form is the degree to which the relationship is evolving between in-house expertise and advice from external agencies now um, both camps participate 
uh, very um, enthusiastically within the Mex community, um, and you know, they all bring uh, different views on this and, and, and different uh, ways of working together. Uh, but I think it's um, it is a time at which that relationship is evolving, and more large companies are recognizing as you talked about at the start of the podcast, the strategic value of design, wanting to bring that in-house, being able to put in place the budgets to build out in-house teams where previously they may have been relying on external agency expertise. And it's changing that relationship. And I think it's changing um, the role and some of the thoughts of those who have founded agencies about what the role of their particular businesses will be in the future. And to my mind, there's a little bit of a polarization going on where you have um, external agencies that are wanting to join and become part of very large IT outsourcing businesses that are able to bid for and put experience design at the heart of very large scale digital transformation efforts. Uh, And then there are those agencies which are moving into very particular niche craft specialisms, uh, particularly around certain bits of emerging technology. So ones which have got a real specialism in virtual reality, for instance, or a real specialism in wearables or a real specialism in haptics. And that middle ground where you've got the sort of general day-to-day of of experienced design work and uh, making better design decisions off the back of of what you're learning um, is migrating more and more into the the in-house teams. So I think it's it's an interesting time in in the overall cycle, and perhaps it will be a cyclical thing, and we'll see things um, you know change back to, uh, to to how they've been previously, or to to evolve further. But yeah, there, there's certainly it certainly feels like there's quite a rapid period of change going on at the moment in that area. Well, I guess the the um, the the use of of uh, consultants. Uh, needn't stop, but it's just a case of, of changing the the value and, and nature of that relationship. Um, and um, when I when I'm referring to bringing uh, strategic design thought or thinking into an organisation and having it at the very core of your organisation's ethos, that doesn't necessarily preclude the use of of external agencies. Um, if anything, it might even um, strengthen the need for external agencies to continue to build uh, expertise uh, within your organization by tapping into external expertise that has been uh, honed from numerous projects across numerous uh, other organizations and, and numerous different fields. So, um Potentially, the the agency uh, becomes partly a coach, partly a facilitator, um, and strengthens the ability of the organisation to have user-centred thinking at its core. Yeah, I think that's a, an excellent point. Um, and the agencies which are on top of this, I think, are wising up to that pretty swiftly and starting to rethink a little bit how they deliver their expertise so that it can play that role of the the strategic coach, if you like. And I think there's a, a healthy business within that. Um, but yeah, it's going to be an interesting 
one to watch and see how that evolves. As I say, we've got participants from all parts of the experience design world within the MEX community. So it's wonderful to be able to sort of tap into all of the different trends that we're seeing among that and, and keep up to date with, with how it's evolving. Um, but what about um, the, the podcast itself, Alex? I mean, we have now got together for perhaps not uh, all 29 of, of the episodes, but a good many of them for these kind of conversations and to interview people together. We've been on site to go and visit various different uh, people to, to record live with them, like the VR special that we did with um, with Greg Taylor at Tiger Spike. Um, what's it meant for you overall over the, the, the course of the year? You know, Is there a particular thing you can point to that... Um, you've been able to get out of doing these shows? Um, there are quite a few different things, not least the the opportunity to uh, speak with um, some some very switched on people whom I probably wouldn't have had a chance to, to spend, you know, uh, an hour or so quizzing uh, from time to time and, and, and really getting some benefit from that. Um, that, that for me has been uh, really a very valuable experience and, and has allowed uh, I think, as I said earlier, the, the the opportunity to really see what is going on and and how people are thinking and and to bring that into into my own thinking about uh, my current startup. So that's uh, that's really invaluable for me. Yeah, it's amazing how generous people have been with their time over the course of this year. I mean, that that's been a real virtue. I think is that I think pretty much everyone we have invited to come on the podcast has been up for doing it and has agreed willingly and come on and you know shared an hour plus of their time to be involved in the show and, and the research beforehand and it's wonderful that enthusiasm exists out there and also that it's led on to so many other interesting conversations and, and opportunities um, yeah I think with all of the guests that we've had on they've all then gone on to introduce us to someone else interesting to talk to or to maybe share a different product with us or to, to follow up in some other way um, so it's become a really nice um, community of people that, that are involved in that which is lovely to see yeah and and, and that really is uh, I guess at the the heart of what uh, mex is about well, let's hope so. Long may it um, continue, because I think it's it's nice to have that place to be able to explore and to explore in a bit more depth, you know, some of the things that we might have covered uh, in other ways previously in the journal at mobileuserexperience.com, at the conference. Yeah, this format of the podcast, the idea of introducing it was to have a bit of a different medium in which to explore things in a different way. Uh, and to my mind, it, it seems to be, be working in that regard. But yeah, perhaps the, the listeners themselves have thoughts on that and things that they might like to hear more of or less of in the, the future. Um, we're at MexFeed on Twitter, um, or you can email designtalk at mobileuserexperience.com. Uh, and we'd love to hear feedback on that. We've had some wonderful comments from listeners so far over the, the last year, but um, do please keep them coming in because it, it's great to hear your thoughts on uh, you know where you'd like us to, to go with the podcast, either topics or formats. Um, you know, do, do stay in touch with that. And as a sort of a final question from, from you to you for this particular episode, um, what, what does uh, the podcast have 
coming up, perhaps it might be worth uh, just highlighting one or two of those things. Well, I mean, I'd be interested to hear your thoughts on this as well, Alex, as to what you'd like to, to do. But for me, I've very much enjoyed those ones we've been able to record in person. Yeah, quite a few have been recorded over Skype because we've interviewed people from you know, Sweden to Las Vegas to Silicon Valley, and Skype has been great at making all that happen. But when we have been able to go in and meet people in person and record one-to-one like that, uh, I think it adds a bit of a different dimension to things. So there was the interview with Matt Hunter, which I think worked very well. We did the one live at Mech 16 with Rob Graham uh, of AstraZeneca. Uh, there was the conversation with Mike Short of O2. There was uh, the session where we went into Tiger Spike for virtual reality. You know, they, each one of those episodes, I think, had a certain aspect to it which you maybe don't get over skype so uh, we've got plans in place to do more of those in the future so hopefully the listeners can look forward uh, to those but what about for you is there anything in particular you think we should focus on for the next year of podcasts well i i was funnily enough also going to mention how much uh, how much i enjoyed uh going into tiger spike for our our vr experience there were some good toys they, they certainly were, and and um, if uh, if you know if if there are other people out there who want to have their their, their toys um, experienced uh, live on a on a podcast, you know, I'm sure there are one or two people uh, sitting right here right now who who would be willing participants. Absolutely, yeah, I, I second that. It's always good to go in and see some things live and get uh, hands on with the technology. Um, but I guess we should draw things to a bit of a close. Um, you know, I hope uh, you've all enjoyed hearing a little bit of a catch up of the different things that we've been able to talk about with all our various guests over the year. Uh, we're going to be looking forward to doing many more in the future. Um, and if you haven't yet had a chance to listen to uh, those previous episodes they are all archived at mobileuserexperience.com just go along to the podcast section and you can hear many more hours of alex and i droning on about all sorts of different things with our guests well alex i guess it's um here's to the first year of podcasts and um hopefully here's to another year more absolutely And that's it for this edition. Thanks to all of our listeners, our guests and our contributors for helping us with Mech's Design Talk over the last year. Do please keep in touch. It's mobileuserexperience.com for the show notes, Mech's feed on Twitter, and designtalk at mobileuserexperience.com if you'd like to email us. And do please share the podcast with your friends. You can send people direct to mobileuserexperience.com or just ask them to search for Mech's Design Talk on iTunes, SoundCloud, TuneIn, Stitcher, pretty much anywhere else you get good podcasts. Thanks for listening. See you in a couple of weeks.